Hiya, Duncan Green here with the latest roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Only got three posts this week to talk you through. Uh, normally I'd wait another week, but I'm about to hop on a plane and go to Amman to do uh, the next of our series of training sessions on influencing for UN and other aid leaders, which is all great fun. So I'll be away all next week. Uh, so uh, I thought I'd just get this out of the way and talk you through. Um, and there's plenty to talk about. So first of all, things I liked, traditional start of the week. Um, and there was this amazing quote from Nikola Tesla, the original you know, um, genius, uh, describing a cell phone in 1926, okay? So here he is in 1926. When wireless is perfect, perfectly applied, the whole earth will be converted into a huge brain, which in fact it is, all things being particles of a real and rhythmic whole. We shall be able to communicate with another instantly, irrespective of distance. Not only this, but through television and telephony, we shall see and hear one another as perfectly as though we were face to face, despite intervening distances of thousands of miles. And the instruments through which we shall be able to do all this will fit in our vest pockets. I mean, how did he know that? Amazing. So um, hats off to Nikola Tesla. Um, and there's some other nice posts. There's some really good stuff coming out of the OECD at the moment on aid, the you know, nuts and bolts of aid. There's a fantastic intervention by a ex-fam colleague, Mogo Kamaliani, at the World Health Assembly on intellectual property, just yeah, lots of stuff to, to, to enjoy. Okay, next post, reforming the World Bank. Some good ideas, but where's the power, politics and feasibility? Spent a half day at ODI recently discussing the reform of the multilateral development banks, the global ones like the World Bank and the regional ones like the Asia or African development banks, and the new ones like the BRICS Bank. It was interesting for what was said, but also for what was missing. So first, what was said on World Bank governance, governance is a mess, especially at the World Bank. And, and there was a presentation by the ODI's Mandeep Baines, who's got a new paper. The bank has three tiers. Ministers of shareholder governments are the top tier, a board of governors who are our permanent resident officials from shareholder countries, and senior management led by the president. That means that the board of governors is kind of piggy in the middle between two layers, ending up neither strategic nor executive. It's kind of, you know, floating. Plus the president chairs the board. So what Mandeep does in her paper is apply corporate governance principles, uh, although that I'm not quite sure they should apply to the World Bank. Uh, and according to these, the board should have a strategic focus, delegate supervision and oversight to management and <gasps> shock for the World Bank, appoint directors based on merit, appoint directors with the right skills. None of that happens not least because resident board of governor members have far too much time on their hands, so they constantly meddle in decisions which should really be left to management. Why is it like this? So Chris Humphrey, also of ODI, acknowledged the politics at the heart of it. Every government re uh, representative has to balance their government's domestic interests with those of the institution of the World Bank. In recent years, that balance has tilted towards the domestic, especially for the US, where its representatives have prioritised placating domestic constituents, including civil society organisations and Congress, over what I call GSD, getting shit done. Definitely not Chris's acronym, mine. It's always much easier to put in another rule to make sure we don't get beaten up. And that is, those are Chris's words. 
Mandeep had plenty of recommendations for reform, but from the floor, Tim Lancaster, who's been around, who was you know, the board governor, the UK's governor in 1987, showed just how stuck the bank is because he said, well, look, these are great proposals. And we made most of them in 1987 and got absolutely nowhere. Hmm, we'll come back to that. On climate finance, there were some interesting disagreements. So Shanta Devarajan, who's ex-World Bank and now at, um, uh, in, in a university, argued that while climate change adaptation finance is a national public good, climate change mitigation, reducing emissions, is a global public good. And they have very different politics. He thinks mitigation financing should be given to some kind of green fund and taken away from the multilateral banks because their governance is, as I said earlier, a load of government reps putting their national interests first. That may work for adaptation and maybe loss and damage, but not for emission reductions. For climate mitigation, we need people who are reps of the whole planet. Michael Jacobs from the floor, who uh, uh, is an environmentalist at Sheffield University, disagreed. He argued that most mitigation involves the holy grail of co-benefits. Clean energy transitions help countries' own development as well as the global climate. So there's no need to hive it off. Kathy Hochstetler from the LSE, who happens to be my departmental head at the LSE, wanted, wanted co-benefits to be true, don't we all? But she saw clear trade-offs between mitigation and national development and poverty reduction in areas like fossil fuels. Josue Tanaka thought that the global, poverty, global public goods frame was not helpful. We need to translate everything into national interest. I, for example, mitigation has to do with air pollution of all water, focusing on the overlap, not the difference. Shanta was willing to go to 30% of mitigation providing co-benefits, but suggested a way of redefining poverty that might help square the circle. Let's think about intergenerational poverty, I, uh, also known as we have to stop frying our grandchildren. Quite a striking phrase, which he stole from someone else, I think. Then finally, the borrowers, uh, otherwise known as poor countries. More and more of them are voting with their feet, preferring to take more expensive loans on the private finance market because they're quick and fit the political cycle of a politician who has to show results before the next election, rather than spend years and years and years arguing with the bank officials. How to reduce the hassle factor at places like the World Bank? That was a question asked by Ganeshan Wignaraja. Could they not at least harmonise reporting requirements and other paperwork between all the different development banks so you don't have to do spend months for each one? And a powerful critique of the limited value of much of the research on offer to borrowers. So this struck a chord because there were a lot of researchers in the, in the room. For Ganeshan, responsive advice is often more useful than money to borrower governments. But it's, but it's got to be responsive. Actually, it often comes as indigestible, long-form, set-piece reports without enough inputs from local staff, experts and think tanks. Sound familiar? Ken Apollo was even more critical. Policy research is too close to the academic publication process and removed from policy re re relevance. We need to divorce it from this faddist chasing of journal editor needs. What we're doing now may be good for careers and journals, but not for developing countries. Ouch. Apollo also argued that researchers need to take borrower country politicians seriously, understand their ideas and where they're coming from, if their research is to be useful. Absolutely right. Got to, got to think about the users of the research, or people who you'd like to use it, 
and see what would actually help them and not just tell them what you think they should know. Which brings me to the big gap in the conversation. Back to Mandy Baines, who set out some very sensible governance reforms and then said in a throwaway line, as these are unlikely, an intermediate step is to appoint some independent non-government directors. Uh, ah, okay. Other speakers did focus more on what is politically feasible. Nancy Birdsall proposed leaving the core governance structure alone rather than waste decades trying to reform it, as Tim Lancaster described. Instead, look for a hack that allows us to bypass deeply entrenched domestic problems. Those are Chris Humphrey's words, such as setting up new funds. Their money talks, and if China wants to put in more than anyone else, it gets a lot much larger say in the governance. Julie Katzman from the Inter-American Development Bank said they have done something similar, setting up something called IDB Invest. But as well as the power of new money, another driver of such changes is borrowers voting with their feet. As countries stop borrowing, the pressure on the bank to grow will, uh, to change will grow. Like any bank, it needs customers to keep it solvent. Final broader point, this discussion on feasibility was very much on the margins coming after a lot of what I call if I ruled the world presentations. If I ruled the world, this is how I would reform the World Bank. I don't think that's good enough. I think it should be mandatory for any, any policy research paper which sets out recommendations for change to have an appendix sent, setting out its theory of change. Who would decide these changes that you're arguing for? What are their disincentives? What events, narratives or messengers might persuade them? These are the kind of things that um, will actually make a difference. And if you don't do that, then you're whistling in the wind, really. And that's a polite way of saying it. Final post, how to get people to take the care economy seriously. We've got an amazing team at Oxfam uh, uh, who have been for years beavering away on trying to unpack the care economy, which is, you know, people looking after relatives, people you know, doing social reproduction, all the things that are not in GDP, basically. Um, and they've, they've now come up with a rather nice toolkit on, on how to build pu public pressure for change on the care economy. And this is by Sylvia Gallandini and Ann Parvez and Nick Gadsby. They have a New Oxfam toolkit on this. And it's how to construct a fresh and compelling narrative about the value of all care. And it's based on research to understand how the general public across the UK thinks about both paid and unpaid care and testing alternative messages with a nationally representative sample of 3,000 people. I like this message testing thing. It's very much what the um, uh, Development Engagement Lab I wrote about a couple of weeks ago has been doing on aid, and they've been doing this on, uh, on, on paid and unpaid care. It's really, I mean, the, the toolkit is really about how to write a good policy brief or a comms piece about a subject which is not currently top of the public's list of concerns. First, they say, start with a clear premise. And here are their top tips. An example of a clear premise, they say, is every day across the UK, the work of paid and unpaid carers helps hold society together. It's the invisible network of support, empathy and care for the people who need it most that supports our social and economic foundations. That is really good writing, I have to say. And what you, what, if you unpack that, you've got to set the scene that care is always on and everywhere. And it includes different types of care. Highlight that the work carers do is the social glue of society. Um, the idea of the invisible network of support. Emphasise that this work benefits those who need it the most. And essential to state that the work of carers is crucial for society and the economy. So that's like a really good kind of how to come up with a clear premise. 
And then they say back it up with some overall numbers with you know to give your background evidence. So their proposal is in the UK, more than 10 million people provide unpaid care and paid care. That's over one in five. They help our children grow and learn, support disabled people's independence, ensure our elderly relatives live fulfilling lives and keep our homes running. It is really good running, writing, I have to say, sorry. Um, and so you're saying, saying how many people, um, but you're describing abstract figures in ways that people can more easily understand, you know, helping our children grow and learn showing the range of responsibilities, using belonging language like our or we, not, not you know, creating the sense that there's some other people out there, uh, and make it possible to people's everyday experiences, keeping our homes running. Yeah, so these are this is how you do the overall evidence. And then what you, with it, beneath that, you need some impact statements, and they suggest you need three kinds. One describes the negative consequences of not providing greater support. Um, one looks at the overall health and care infrastructure and the well-being of wider society. Uh, and then uh, another one is on those receiving care. So, yeah, I'll get, I didn't put them all in for reasons of space, but here's, um, here's the one on uh, showing care as a collective activity. Without greater support and investment for carers, there will be serious consequences for society. The NHS will struggle to cope, even more than it already does, causing more people to suffer and further unnecessary deaths. Properly funded social care is key to tackling this escalating problem. But many carers are already under pressure, undervalued and struggling financially. So without greater investment for both paid and unpaid carers, the future and well-being of our loved ones is at risk. So again, you know, people care about the NHS, go in on that. Um, Talk about the human suffering involved. That gets people to sit up and pay, uh, pay attention. Show that better funding for the care infrastructure is key, but make it clear the carers are already struggling and need support. And then well, let's come to the, the audience research. So what they did was they asked people to, uh, to rank a bunch of issues before they received these narratives and after, all right? And... Um, when they did it before, the, first, the top three were the economy and the cost of living, health and the NHS, immigration and asylum. When they did it after, it was the economy and the cost of living, health and the NHS, and then care came third. It moved up from seventh to third, and from 16% of all the 3,000 people they surveyed to 38% of uh, people they surveyed. Now, that's all great. That's quite a compelling argument. My only caveat is that, I don't know about you, but I always tend to agree with the last person I heard. I've got a bit of a goldfish mind. And so it's quite likely that if I was being researched in this audience, I would suddenly say, oh, care really matters. And then by the end of, by, yeah, within a few days time, I'd have forgotten that and I'd go back to the ones I had before. So what I would have liked to see, I don't know if they're planning to do this, is go back to that same audience after six months and see what their ranking is then. That that will tell you whether this stuff is sticky or just, you know, transient. But really interesting. I think, you know, this idea of evidence-based building narratives, showing what, yeah, it's just, a, it's just a smart piece of work. So I'll leave you on that. Have a great weekend. Uh, I will be back um, in action the week after next, after hopefully uh, having a fun time in Amman and uh, getting lots of people to think about theories of change and power and systems and all that stuff. Okay, bye.